Welcome to Dear Runner Bod, the pod dedicated to helping you embrace your runner's body. I'm Serena Marie RD, a registered dietitian and body image coach who wants you to stop dieting and start fueling the athlete within. While I am a medical professional, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to diagnose, treat, or cure. Now, let's start rewriting your body's story. So this week's review of the week is by Betsy Six. And Betsy, since you took two seconds to leave a review, you now have won a masterclass of your choosing. Send me an email, send me a DM so I can gift it to you. Review of the week is such an amazing thing because not only do you have a chance to win a super valuable masterclass free from me, but also it helps to spread the podcast message to more listeners. So Betsy said, my new weekly must listen and pod. If you are a runner, a female, you eat, you have a body or any combination of these, you will fall in love with Serena and this new pod. Solo episodes with Serena bringing her food freedom athlete message with knowledge and passion are amazing. Her interview episodes are doubly amazing. A few guests are already on my radar and she's introduced me to some fascinating new voices in sport, body image, and female empowerment. Subscribed for sure and watching for the weekly episodes to drop heart emoji. Thank you, Betsy. I am so appreciative for your review and make sure you message me to claim your free prize. Today on Dear Runner Bod, we have a really awesome guest. And this is a guest that maybe you would be a little bit confused why I would invite on a podcast about running and body image. Erin is actually an expert in the Enneagram, and we're going to dive into what that means on today's call. And Erin um, is not only an Enneagram expert, but she is a leadership coach, a behaviorist, and she has spent more than 20 years in director positions in support of leaders who were ready to uplevel their businesses, teams, and ultimately their lives. And Erin today is going to help share her perspective, expertise, and passion to create a braver, kinder, and just world. She has her bachelor's degree in human development. She has a master of public health and she is finishing her PhD in industrial and organizational psychology with a focus on personality as a framework for coaching and development. People and the motivations behind behaviors are Erin's jam. She has been studying and using the Enneagram for 12 years, and she is a certified Enneagram teacher and trainer, as well as an accredited Enneagram professional from the International Enneagram Association. She has been studying and working in the field of behavior change for over 20 years. And geez Louise, when you tune into today's episode, you're going to understand why I invited her. This is not an episode where it's like set an alarm on your phone and do the habit that you've been saying you're going to be working on. This episode really is going to give you a lot of compassion and insight into why you've maybe been stuck trying to reshape or rebuild some of your habits. It's really going to give you a lot of compassion for yourself, and it's going to give you some tools to really help you level up and learn from the mistakes you're making so that you actually can start to make real changes in your personality and your patterns and your habits. So I'm so excited for today's episode. Um, Make sure that you leave a review if you enjoyed today's call. Another episode of Dear Runner Bot is in session, and today we are chatting with Erin, who is an expert in the Enneagram. Erin, hello. Thanks for joining Hi. us. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
I am so excited because I found Erin. Most people, the way I connect with them nowadays, how I make all my friends, is I stalk people <laughs> on Instagram. Um, I'd like and how to make real friends in real life, honestly. And so I was stalking Erin and I sent her a message. And then it turns out she's also on a food freedom journey. She's also kind of, you know, um, decided to leave diet culture. And so it was just like literally a perfect fit when we kind of found each other on Instagram. I was like, oh my goodness, we're supposed to be friends. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think it's really fun to tell people, um, you know, over the last few years, like, how did you meet this person? I met them on the internet. Like, this is the this is what is good and delightful about social media, right? If you can sort of find your way through all the mess, this is why I stay with it. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Yeah, you got to like let the algorithm like work for you and <laughs> just get rid of block, mute, delete the people that are like upsetting you. And then it does beautiful things like introduce yes. awesome people to to each other. Um, awesome, awesome. So Erin, you know, before we kind of dive into the body image piece of this, I think a lot of people are probably listening and are like, what is Enneagram? Like, what is this word? And so I was introduced to the Enneagram by um, Brie, who I've interviewed on the podcast before. And she was my mentor in kind of learning how to teach body image healing. And we started exploring the Enneagram together. And um, so I, I have my own personal like way that I've used the Enneagram in my practice. But Erin, for you, I guess let's start with the, the basics. What is the Enneagram? Mm-hmm. So the Enneagram is a, a personality model, right? Like not unlike things like Strength Finders or the DISC assessment or Myers-Briggs. Um, and it helps us sort of put language to um, our behaviors and, and understanding what we do. Now, so my background is in, uh, as a behaviorist, is in behavior change. And so I've been trained extensively in personality models. They're, they're really accessible way that we can learn about ourselves and make change. But about 13 years ago, I was introduced to the Enneagram and I was like, whoa, this is different because it's not just doing what a lot of personality frameworks like Myers-Briggs or the DISC assessment do. And that is to sort of categorize or bucket our behavior, right? Like, oh, we're an influencer or we're direct or we're introverted, right? It's just trying to put us in these buckets. All that does is really tell us what we do in any context or environment. It shows how capable we are at learning or how adaptable we are. But if you change the context or you change the environment, the behaviors change. The Enneagram was a tool that created language and clarity around the why I do what I do, the motivation underneath the behavior. How does this behavior serve me and how did it turn into a habit? So we start to understand some of the core coping that come from personality. All personalities birthed out of childhood. So when I was a little person, why did doing these things make me feel safer in the world? And how tied did it get to my nervous system, my emotional regulation, my problem solving, my cognitive thinking, my habits? And so the Enneagram sort of kicks the door open on all of that information. And I found as a behaviorist, it allowed me to help people make change that stuck, right? Because we could get underneath the why and support the why instead of just the what, right? Does that make sense? 
Yes, absolutely. And I, that was like really mind blowing for me because I didn't know that until you came and did that guest talk with, with my clients where, and it's so, it's so funny because as I'm saying it, I'm kind of like, well, duh, of course. Like, <laughs> like it's like, okay, so I'll, this, this personality was, it came from our childhood. Like you just said, it's birth from your childhood and those experiences you have from your childhood. And so I think I was just kind of thinking it was this very like nature driven, like you're born as an Enneagram two or six or whatever. But when you were teaching us how this is essentially your Enneagram number is a little bit of like a trauma response, like a response mm-hmm. How stressful events in childhood have shaped you, that like blew my mind. And honestly, it gave me a little bit more compassion um, for for my Enneagram type because sometimes I can get very frustrated with like my myself and my personality. And you know, I'm I'm an Enneagram too, which uh Aaron could probably like explain that better, but it essentially means like I'm a nurturer, I'm a caretaker, like I'm very like empathetic, and and sometimes I can get annoyed with myself. But when sure. I like this is a trauma response. I was like, oh, like, oh, now I get why I'm like this. Like I, yeah. I it makes so much more sense to me. Yeah. And I think we can like show people what that means when we sort of separate behavior from motivation using you as an example, right? The behaviors of a two that we sort of categorize, right, are nurturing and caretaking. And it's the results, right, of the motivation that often a little baby too connects to my goodness, my worth, my ability to love is tied in my DNA to me taking care of other people, to meeting other people's needs. And so my coping response, my fight, flight, or freeze response gets tied to the accessibility or the ability to meet or exceed people's needs, right? And so most twos sort of develop these like spidey senses around like, I can sort of just tell what people need of me. And and we sort of get really attached to that idea of service. And so when someone doesn't need me or when I can't caretake, I can feel in my nervous system a sense of unsafety, even though at the time I may not have the language for it. But it's like it's a have to. It's a drive. It is way more than like, you know, yes, I'm a nice person, right? But it's way more than that. It's like if I don't do this, I don't know how to calm my body. And I think that's a really important to hold important to hold because we we say trauma kind of flippantly, right? without understanding what it is. And trauma is just the flooding of the nervous system. Either something is happening too fast, too soon, right? With not enough resources, or it's happening too slow. I'm not getting enough support or enough nurturing. And so in on either capacity, my little kiddo self has to fill in the gap before I'm ready. Right. And so that's how we can sort of see this as connected to trauma, that flooding. Yeah. Thank you for actually pointing that out because I don't think we've ever discussed that on the the pod where I learned it was like there's capital T trauma and lowercase T trauma. And so yep. that capital T trauma, I think that's what when I say the word trauma, people are like, Oh, there was a car accident, <laughs> like someone got murdered, like, you know, like these like true, like really scary events. And then those lowercase case T traumas are like Aaron was just describing is like, you know, you get lost for five minutes in the supermarket 
it's really no big deal. But like to you, it was a really huge deal because you were scared and you didn't know what to do. And it's you and you didn't know how to process the emotion in that moment. So, so when yeah. we mama, it, it really doesn't have to be this, like it was on the news event. It can be a thing that you could probably explain it away and no big deal it, but it actually was a big deal for your nervous system and it stayed with you. Yeah. Thank you for pointing exactly. that out. Mm-hmm. That is such a beautiful way to qualify that because, you know, we look at trauma and a kid's brain can't tell the difference between real trauma, like big T trauma or perceived trauma, like getting lost in the grocery store or even a parent starting to travel for work or the birth of a sibling. It just means that, you know, I was put in a situation that required more of me and personality helped fill the gap of that situation. And that's where the habit gets filled because it's like, oh, if I use this tool, it helps me get safe faster. Taking care of other people makes me safe faster, right? So here comes the birth of that too. It is nature, right? You know, Serena, you just are who you are. You're born how you are. You're born in a temperament. And then that temperament has to sort of rumble with life and your parents and your culture and your values and your identity. And together they sort of polish this perfect, unique human. That is so interesting. Okay. So, so I've, I've been kind of saying I'm an Enneagram too. I'm an Enneagram too. How many Enneagram types are there, Erin? Yeah, it's such a great question. Uh, in sort of like modern Enneagram information, we talk about it in nine archetypes. Um, and this is where I really think it gets fil- like sort of filtered or diluted because there's actually 27 different subtypes. And let's get really complicated. We resource differently. You know, we, they have these things called wings, right? So these resources you use on either side. So we actually can have 54 different combinations of archetypes that feed information. So if you are new to the Enneagram or you have not liked the Enneagram or you've struggled to find your type in the Enneagram, I just want to validate that you're normal. It is really hard. When I first it was introduced to the Enneagram, I thought I fit in the type three, right? Um, Which is often our doer or achiever. My mom is actually a type three. And so I learned from her. I worked in corporate America, which is very type three achieving behavior. When I take an online Enneagram test, it tests me as a two or a nine. And what I am is a social dominant type seven with a six wing. Basically, I am this really introverted, self-sacrificing type seven. I I sort of fight against the gluttonous tendencies of a seven that feels selfish, and I give them away to other people. I'm what you call a countertype. So I don't look like, when you read all the memes and everything about seven, it doesn't look like me. You wouldn't think that's me. But my inside story is very much that. And so... I say all of that because typing is really complex. And so if you're new to it, I encourage you to start with the instincts, which Sharina, I can give you a a YouTube video that I have for free that folks can watch, that they they can piece apart these three subtypes, decide that first, and then go to type. I think that's easier. 
Okay, cool. Yeah. So in the the show notes, show notes, I'll just have any references that Aaron uh, discuss, discusses today, like that YouTube video. If you have like a test, um, an enneagram test, um, yeah. that we can share because I think it's really interesting. Uh, even if it's just to follow some enneagram accounts and like laugh at the memes um, of your type. Um, I don't know. It just it's just I don't know. I think people are just a little bit. They're we're always interested in our own like self, and so it's Heck it's yeah. Heck yeah, for sure. So, okay. So we we're talking about how there's these nine different types, but technically there's like 54 different archetypes. And, and so essentially, eventually you can do the work, you can try your best to figure out like which type you are. And it just gives you some information essentially, I guess, about how you behave. Do you think I'm saying that correctly or is yeah, there my yeah. miss? Okay, so how you behave. Okay. So so what I'm interested in is as a dietitian who works with eating disorders, as a dietitian who works with women who are struggling with loving and accepting their body is how we take this information about type like my tuness, your sevenness, um how we take this information and how we apply it to start changing our brain chemistry, to start changing our beliefs, to start changing our habits. That's what Erin's the real expert in, changing the habits. So you had said something um, to my to my clients when you did that guest talk, and it was talking about cognitive activity. And so I want to like kind of lead you to discuss that because I thought it was fascinating, but I can't really like repeat it because I didn't 100% understand it. But you were saying like when it comes to making – like it comes to your behavior – there's like 5% of the brain is like mm-hmm. consciousness and then the rest of it is like subconscious or autonomic. So can you kind of explain, I'm not even really asking the question, but explain that to us because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I can. And I think it leads into the question of then how do you use your type to make habits? Yeah, I think you're you're perfectly clear in this. You know, it's sort of like Freudian psychology 101, right? If you remember the sort of picture of the iceberg where it sort of shows you what's on the surface, what people see, and then what lives underneath. And that's a lot of what we understand about how the brain works, right? We've heard about things like neuroplasticity, which there's, you know... um, neurobiologists are sort of pushing into the neuroscience a little bit and that we understand that our brains are plastic. They are adaptable. They sort of, we can create new synapses, right? So you can teach an old dog new tricks really, but understanding the conscious, subconscious, unconscious mind gives all of us a framework to understand why it's hard why the work gets tiring, (laughs) why we need to rest, right? So the idea is this, the little part of, of our brain that sort of sits above the surface, the conscious mind, that's the part of us that is present and aware, right? We are currently in the moment. We aren't ruminating on the past. We aren't thinking about the future. We are just in the here and now. And our habits, including our personality, work really, really hard to find repeat behaviors in our lives so that we don't have to use that precious here and now energy, right? So a good example, yeah, right. A good example would be um, driving to work every day. At some point, your brain goes, oh, I don't need to pay attention to this. We take this route every morning. 
I'm gonna those those neural synapses that groove in my brain is so well worn, I can turn off the conscious mind and I can let my subconscious, my habits drive this and reserve some of that present energy for the real things in life, right? And this is biological and evolutionary because we need that high intense energy, you know, to like fight for our survival, (laughs) right? Or problem solve. And because we don't have a lot of us, especially in privileged bodies, don't have those kinds of threats as often, we we develop those habits around things that are like, you know, the way this email made me feel or this text message, right, becomes the, the new thing that needs my attention. But it's this cycle of pattern repetition that develops a habit that lives in our subconscious to change that habit. We have to be able to pull ourselves back into the present moment. And then we use behavior change theory and, and frameworks around behavior change in the present moment to resource ourselves in a really unique way that allows us to change those patterns and practice a new pattern and make a new habit, right? Um, And so we can understand this around food, (laughs) right? A lot of our, our, whether we like crave salty treats or, you know, sugary treats or how we use uh, food for emotional support, a lot of that is habit uh, uh, that we are, we learn and we can unlearn with the right kind of support, right? Um, and that, for me, is why the Enneagram is so powerful, because I can get really into what's true for you by knowing your Enneagram type and all the details of it, that we can find behavior change strategies and support that really are in alignment with what feels safe to you versus wearing somebody else's version of support and safety that has us feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough or I'm a failure. This is too hard, right? That misalignment between what works for me and what works for somebody else is actually draining our our success and our capacity. This is, oh my God, I'm taking so many notes just like last time. And I'm so happy we're like kind of having a similar conversation. And um, if you're listening to this and you're kind of like, wait, there's a lot happening. Like I encourage you to listen to this again, because I do think it's, it's these like very tiny nuances. So, so here's what I'm gathering. Conscious mind, that is the here and now that is like, I am fully alert. I am aware. I am like in the moment. The yep. subconscious is the Enneagram, essentially. It's that the patterns, the habits, like your your personality. And then the unconscious is the part of the brain that's like making sure you're breathing, like doing those like, yeah, those autonomic behaviors. Okay. So the unconscious mind, like we don't have to worry about it. Like, thank God. Thank it God. Wise. <laughs> <laughs> I've got enough on my plate. <laughs> Okay. Thank God. We don't have to worry about that. So what we kind of have control over is this conscious mind. And then the subconscious mind, that's where that like neuroplasticity comes in where, yes, you can start to rewire and change your, your behaviors and your habits. Um, but, but it's hard. Am I, am Mm -hmm. I like kind of recapping this correctly? Yeah. You're spot on like a plus spot on. That's exactly right. And it's hard because it requires training, right? And we don't live in a culture that encourages slow burn training. We want fast now, yesterday, right? 
And so a lot of what I sort of think about as ego development, right, this personal or professional development is billed to us as consumption, learn everything, but there lacks the integration from the conscious to the subconscious. And that's where you and I really jive, right? Because we both love that work of let's take this from great information about food freedom or how to take really good you know, care of our body in alignment with what feels good to us and bring it into our everyday practice. Wow. Okay. Yes, that is absolutely where we jive because that is like my favorite thing in the world. I every day have clients message me and I'm like literally like a little kid shrieking like, oh my God, drink water. Okay. I'm supposed to be drinking water. Like why is it so exciting? And I'm like, because this is hard. Like it is hard to, you know, reprogram your brain to make you need, like feel that urge to drink enough water as an athlete. Okay. So, so What I'm hearing now is when you understand your Enneagram, it helps you resource. And so first of all, I think it would be helpful. What is resourcing? Like, let's explain this to whoever's listening. What does that mean when you resource yourself? It's finding the tools and support that help you cope with the flooding that occurs, right? So that can be a mantra, a positive thought, right? Like when we feel the urgency in our body, it might be as simple as, oh, I'm safe. I'm in control, right? It can be um, emotional regulation tips around connecting to our worthiness. It can be um, somatic things like grounding and breath work. I mean, there's trillions of tools that help us resource. And I think about this like a pair of jeans, right? It's like trying to find the perfect pair of jeans. We are not the sisterhood of the traveling pants. We cannot all wear the same jean and they all fit. And so, so much of wellness culture, you know, sort of perpetuates this ideal that this one thing, getting up at five in the morning, drinking your coffee alone and journaling will be it for you. And then we feel like something's wrong with us because we can't get the jeans up, (laughs) right? And so it really is this empowering process of being able to name and know what support looks like for me and choosing the tools that help me resource so that I can show up to my health, my body, my friends, my family, my work in a way that actually serves me. And it's just like, it's so beautiful to hear. I love that we weren't even talking about like the 5 a.m. journaling habit and that you just brought that up because I think that is so common, especially with the female runners, the type A people that I work with. Like, and I'm going to even just like raise my hand. Like I feel guilty. I feel shame that I'm this person who is embodying health on the internet and I don't wake up at five o'clock in the morning and journal. Like if you like call, you could call me out on that and I would have like a visceral, like, ooh, womp, womp. Like I don't do that. And at the same time, I know that that like doesn't feel good for me. Like it, like, you know, I don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Like I have a very, you know, blessed situation where I work for myself. I don't have kids yet. Like there's no need for me to do that right now. Maybe one day there will be, but for right now I'm good. I can sleep till seven. And so like, I, um, it just feels really nice. Like it feels really loving 
for you to just say that to me and give me that permission to just like listen to my own body and and figure out what works best for me. Um, so thank you for saying that. And <laughs> and so like, is there and and I'm I'm truly like asking this from knowing nothing. So is there like a pattern where like most Enneagram twos resource really well with you know grounding. Most Enneagram sevens resource really well with journaling. Like, is there any kind of like common thread for resourcing depending on an Enneagram or no? Yeah, I can really see some trends and some patterns depending on types, right? So if we take a high active, high energy type, probably like a lot like a community or your listeners, right? Really type A, there are a handful of types that will funnel into that type A behavior, right? They learn safety, whether it's the type one who's pushing to be better and improve, whether it's the type three who wants to finish things, whether it's the type seven who wants to escape things or eights who want to be in control of things, right? There's lots of types that push. It's the why the pushing matters. And so we can often find some commonality between how we support the pushing. Where I see things really needing to be nuanced is I wouldn't support a type three and a type nine the same way. And the reason is that is because energetically, their nervous systems are really different. And even within the subtypes of these types, their nervous systems are different. And so that's why a lot of my behavioral work is also somatic because I need to help them get in their bodies in a way. And some of them might be pushing themselves harder and some of them might be learning the art of slowing down. Um, And so, yeah, I do think there are trends that we can see. It is complicated, right? I try really hard not to sort of label and stereotype because we have type as a construct, but we also have gender identity, culture, religion, you know, uh, our our marginalization, our ability, oppression, like all of these things also influence my behavior and what's accessible to me. And so we sort of have to rumble with the internal world and the external world when we're resourcing. Um, And that's complicated. And that's why I have a job. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking to myself like because when I'm working with clients, so you know, we do that resourcing situation because we're trying to unlearn a lot of those um reliance on restricting food or over exercising or or you know, body bashing that our culture kind of teaches us to to use as the magical key to being happy. And I'm kind of just like kind of running through different options and then people will just kind of raise their hand and be like, oh, that one worked, right? And so it's super cool to me. I'm like sitting here and I'm like, she's got like a superpower where she's like, okay, Serena's a two and this is her subtype and all these other things that I don't even understand. And you're like, I bet this would work for you. And that is so cool that you have that ability. It is. I love it. It's unnerving for folks at first because they're like, whoa, you're like the Wizard of Oz. You just got behind that curtain really fast. And it even happens to my husband too. So I have to be really thoughtful about making sure that I'm going at their pace, not mine, um, which is work for me. It requires me to use a lot of that conscious thought and a lot of grounding so that I can make sure that I'm doing this with and for them and not for me. 
Okay, so cool. Is there, and, I, and this might not be a fair question, but like, it's, is there like one or two or three like resourcing skills that you can maybe walk us through or describe to us so that maybe whoever's listening could try it out for themselves um, the next yeah. time they're in a sticky situation? Yeah, I think um, one of the, and we might have talked about this when I was with your group too. Um, one of the things I highly recommend for people who have an urgent nervous system, somebody who are type A achievers, goers, doers, hold themselves to high standards, is practicing making mistakes, practicing being messy. And we never do that in high stakes situations, right? So we might be in a boardroom, we might be, you know, making decisions at work, we might be doing client work. And we think like, this is where I have to practice. And for this type of person or energy or personality, absolutely not. We are going to go to the safest place possible. And we are going to practice there. So I'll give you an example. I had a client of mine who very type A, liked her home orderly, um, you know, liked everything picked up. It really sort of served her nervous system to be settled. And she was struggling to use her voice at work, right? And so what we started doing was having her kiddos uh, help her empty the dishwasher. And so her four-year-old daughter would pick up the silverware, open the drawer and dump them in. And her whole body is like, I have to fix this. I have to fix this. I have to fix this, right? And her work was to not fix it, but not to push through mentally. It was to regulate physically and emotionally, right? So what was she, what are her thought patterns? What was she telling herself? I am still good if my silverware is messy and that I'm going to ground myself and breathe and be with my body until it passes, and eventually over time, she could leave the toys out before she went to bed or it didn't matter if the dishes were in the sink a little bit longer, right? And this is true for a lot of my high achieving clients. I work with incredibly successful businesswomen that their homework is to leave the dishes in the sink overnight, right? But it's practice to be able to do the big thing in front of a client or a vendor or, or you know, a boss, and know that their body knows how to manage the scary situation. So I think that's a high energy thing that I would recommend for folks, practice making mistakes at home. And then I think conversely, those lower energetic folks that feel like it takes them a lot of time to take action, they struggle to say no, right? Serena is someone like a type two who has a hard time saying no. Um, I recommend more reflective work, right? So get a journal and at the end of every day, I want you to acknowledge the places that you wish you would have said no, that you wish that, oh, I did too much here. I, you know, I really didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. And I want you to journal out what you would have said if you could have, if your body could have handled the conversation, how you would have said no to that person. I because in that. both instances, both the practicing being messy and writing out, my body doesn't understand the concept, the, the, the sort of construct or the context, right? Real or perceived trauma. And so I'm practicing the flooding of saying no in the safety and the comfort of my bed with my jammies with my kitty cat, right? 
and writing it out and my body's getting the practice of saying no, eventually I'll be able to say it to my partner or to my kid and hopefully someday, you know, out in the world. And so we find ways to practice the habit that helps us break up with the pattern that isn't serving us. I am nodding my head and just basically she just gave me homework. So (laughs) (laughs) thanks, Erin. No, seriously. You're welcome. That's (laughs) awesome. Um, I know we're starting to run over, but I did just want to ask one last question before we get to our final question here. So in, um, you know, this podcast, we we talk a lot about like body image. And so I guess when I'm trying to think how to ask this question, but like, how does fixating on your body size, your body's quote unquote imperfections, like how is that, like why is that something that women of all Enneagram types, like why is that something that is so appealing to our brain chemistry? Like mm-hmm. why are we all getting stuck there? Yeah. Um, like is do you have any behaviorists? Okay. Talk. I do. I've been really like rumbling with this for the past like year or so. And I finally feel like I have some clarity around it. And I think it's both personality related and cultural, right? Um, I feel like, especially in in American culture, we have a crisis around self-worth and self-love, right? And when I see development, when I see personal and professional development, we sort of see it on this spectrum of folks who have high self-confidence, but low self-worth or self-love are just ego, right? Like they're just that sort of egotistical, it's sort of an emptiness in, in my confidence. On the other end of the spectrum, we have folks who have low self-confidence and low self-love. And what we create instead of ego is self-harm. And a lot of culture puts women's bodies in this bucket, right? We are going to compare you to an ideal, white, thin, pretty, privileged, that, you know, what, 3% of the population inhabits. And we are going to just culturally, we lack this sort of self-love, the empathy work. And so it just creates this sort of self-harm. And we do, as women, we do en- like anything and everything to harm reduce. We wear makeup, we get boob jobs, we starve ourselves. Um, I starved myself. I overworked, you know, I worked out. I, I, I was terrible to my body in my 20s. And I got celebrated. I got lifted up, right? Because I was getting closer to the ideal. It wasn't until I understood, honestly, my Enneagram type and why I was doing what I was doing and learned to love and nurture myself in a really meaningful way, was I able to fight those external pressures and say, oh, what would it look like for me to love myself well, even if it doesn't fit the ideal, right? So yeah, I do think there is, there's a a perpetual problem that women have to fight, unfortunately, and we aren't given the tools and the resources. And that is honestly the the sort of hill I'll die on. It's what I want to be doing is helping women love themselves better. And it is like the greatest work I get to do. Yeah, I'm on the hill with you. Like it's, (laughs) It's it's a really hard hill to be on because 
yeah, I think I think that word self harm, um, that really resonates with me because because yeah, like we're trying to reduce the self harm by engaging in these mechanisms like starving or or dieting, dieting and restricting or over exercising, but that's also self harm, and it's just yep. like. It's so sad that the thing that we're taught by society and by culture to be acts of self-love are so often muddled with har- harmful behaviors. And so it's it's just really confusing um, to be on a body image healing journey because it's like, I'm trying to take care of myself. And actually, the tools you've been given are tools that make you hurt yourself. And so, oh my yeah. goodness, it's hard. <laughs> it is. And it's where I sort of learned – and realize that this work is social justice work. This work is equity work. This work is liberation and reclamation. I mean, it is gritty, dirty, messy, fighting work because we're doing this work for ourselves, but we're also pushing back against those norms. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So, 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 so powerful. Um, okay, Erin. So talking about how women are, you know, basically never celebrating their bodies. I ask every um, podcast guest this question. We need more women proclaiming why they love themselves. So Erin, why do you love your body? Oh, that is such a beautiful question. I love it. I don't know that I would have been able to answer it a couple of years ago, but this, this Erin today um, is really, really, really proud of her body. I've had four reconstructive ankle surgeries. Um, I had it fused a couple years ago. I've lost a lot of my mobility. Um, I can no longer run, which is really hard for me because that was a go-to. Um, and I look at the version of me today and I'm just so, so, so proud of how resilient and adaptable and strong my body is and allowing to me to live the life that I live and, and sort of be the catalyst to my impact. So, yeah. So cool. So cool. If people want to find you, um, if the listener wants to hang out with you on social media, where can we find you? Yeah. Check me out at living the Enneagram on Instagram. Um, I love to load that space up with accessible resources so you can learn a little bit about what it's like, um, to soften your habits. And then of course we share a meme or two to give you a good giggle. So I'd love to connect with you there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erin, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Dear Runner Bod. If you enjoyed what you heard, remember to subscribe and make sure you share today's episode. Also, if you're looking to download a free three-step guide to love your runner's bod, then head to serenamarierd.com. Can't wait to chat with you next week.